Have you ever underestimated the value of something? This week, a story came from Edinburgh, Scotland, where a family had greatly underestimated the value of what turned out to be a chess piece that was over 900 years old. The piece was carved from the ivory of a walrus. I think walruses have tusks, I don't know. It was carved from the ivory and was valued after they brought it out of the drawer in which it had been stowed away. It was valued at anywhere they're going to auction it from between 600000 and $1.2 million. It greatly underestimated the value of this chess piece that was, you know, socked away. Encouragement, George Adams says, is the oxygen of the soul. And yet, I've found... Very often, we we underestimate its value, both in our own lives and in the lives of others. This morning, as we turn our attention to Acts chapter 20 in the first 16 verses, we will have a wonderful lesson about the value of encouragement. And it'll come from the life of the Apostle Paul. It gives us a wonderful example to follow in this holy endeavor. You'll notice, before we get started, I want to draw your attention uh, to this truth, that in the first two verses, we see the word encouragement or encourage, most likely in your translation. shows up twice there. And also in verse 17, you'll see the word comfort, probably. Um, But these words, it also kind of means encouragement. They come from the same basic term, uh, which is, I'm going to mispronounce it. My Greek's not great anymore. Parakaleo. Parakaleo. So they're just different verb forms of that same basic term. And what I'm, well, I share that to show you that this idea of comfort or encouragement is a current that runs underneath of this text. All right, that in mind, our main idea this morning is that the Christian life is characterized by encouragement. And the exhortation follows on that. Encourage one another. Encourage one another going to suggest a few ways we can encourage one another this morning. And I put three in your outline. That we can encourage the church by sharing words of encouragement, celebrating Jesus, and following Jesus. Let's pray and we'll begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together with your people Listen to your word proclaimed. Pray that you would help me to preach a better sermon than I've prepared. And that you would prepare the congregation to hear a better sermon than I preach. Pray that your spirit would be at work today. And that we would all fall more deeply in love with our Lord Jesus as a consequence of gathering here. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. And so we're all the way up to Acts chapter 20, and we've summarized the whole book this way. We've said, in Acts, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. And that's precisely what we've seen happen. Early on, Jesus ascends to his throne in heaven from where he rules and he reigns. He pours out his Holy Spirit onto the church. The Spirit fills up his church. 
And the church fills up Jerusalem with a witness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that good news then flows from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is building his church. And most recently, we've been following Jesus' building project by following the life of the Apostle Paul. And so we are kind of in the middle of his third missionary journey, and we're picking up at a point where he is just now preparing to leave Ephesus and to start his journey back towards Jerusalem. And this is what we read in verse 1 of chapter 20. After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had passed through those areas and offered them many words of encouragement, he came to Greece and stayed three months. The Jews plotted against him when he was about to set sail for Syria, and so he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sobater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus, and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Gaius from Derby, Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. And these men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the feast of unleavened bread. In five days, we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. Again, another section that if you really love geography, this is the section for you. I am not a big fan of geography, and so I just am like, Paul is on his way from the west over here to the east to Jerusalem. Macedonia somewhere up in this region. Jerusalem some down here. And he's going to get there. He's going there and he's making stops along the way. And at each of the stops, he's continuing this project that he started uh, back in chapter 14. We've found this theme that he is aiming to strengthen the churches, to strengthen the disciples. And that's what he's doing. He's, he's taking this trip and everywhere he stops, he's passing out encouragement over and over again. And he does it because he loves the church. Do you? Or 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Paul is stopping at all these places because he loves the believers there. I don't know about you when you travel, but when I travel, I don't stop for anyone or anything. And Paul, over and over again, is stopping. You've traveled with people that want to stop all the time, right? Hey, let's stop at the Cracker Barrel and eat. And here's a roadside attraction. We can spend some time there. Maybe there's some animals. or What's like the one on 95? It's like a Latin-themed, like, I can't remember what it is. But, you know, there's like Ferris wheel things there. I hate to travel with those kind of people. When I go, I want to go, and I want to take like a NASCAR pit stop, you know, put the gas in, you put that little thing down, it holds it in place, all the gas goes in, I can go to the bathroom and get back before it's done pumping, and then boom, we're off. Paul, it seems, is not, he's not making a beeline for Jerusalem. That's where he's going. But he is being intentional about how he's spending his time. He's going to take all these little pit stops, and the purpose of these pit stops is to encourage the believers, to encourage the church, to encourage the disciples there. That's how valuable he thinks encouragement is. It's valuable enough to interrupt his progress 
sometimes weeks at a time, so that he might teach and spend time with the disciples in the places that he has been. He plans to encourage. Planning for encouragement is crucial in your life if you are to be an encourager as Paul is. It's something we want to and ought to plan for. And when I say plan for encouragement, I mean encouragement, not flattery. Right? We know the difference, I assume. Paul is not flattering these believers. He's not showing up and putting a cat poster on the wall. He says, hang in there. He's not giving them uh, speeches and the power of positive thinking or belief in themselves. No, no, he's coming with gospel words that are designed to lead those who hear him into a deeper rejoicing in Jesus, designed to keep them continuing in the faith. Well, how do you know that? Well, because we have a sample of his encouragement, his strengthening in Acts 14, 21 through 22. After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, quote, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul's encouragement says, keep following Jesus. I can see the work of the Spirit in your life. Do not give up because in due time we will reap a harvest. Keep following Jesus. As Mildred used to tell me, keep on keeping on. Friends, this is how we should encourage one another. With words that aren't meant to flatter, but meant to point us to Jesus and Jesus' work in us. We want to identify how God is at work in our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then we want to tell them about it. Because oftentimes, the last person to know that the fruit of the Spirit is growing up within them is that person. Let me give you a kind of weird exhortation but I, I want you to gossip about one another. I want you to gossip in an encouraging way, like a positive way. When we say like gossip the gospel, right? To gossip about what God is doing in a positive way. I want you to tell each other, but I want you to tell other people too. I tried to, to, to gossip about Glenn this past week. Have y'all seen how Glenn is so hardworking? He's devoted. He showed up here and he helped me cut apart a tree. I couldn't even get David to do that with me. It was because David was helping Laura. Like, praise God. Well, that's that's simple. But no, like, this is the Spirit of God working within the people of God as they serve one another. Any number of people here on a Sunday morning are serving that are not me. Think about Tim and Susan who prepare the music. Or Pam who works the sound in the back. Or the unsung heroes who count the offering throughout the year and serve in children's ministry. Plenty of you are serving God here. There are plenty of people around that you can encourage. I think of Janie when we have visitors. She makes it a point to exchange information with them. See the, the welcoming heart of God in her. I should tell her that. Thank you. Or I think of 
uh, Linda Dodd this week has been going through some things. She's probably going to, you know, Malcolm is very sick. <laughs> and do you know, we, we went and saw her and do all that stuff and visited. Uh, and he started to do better on Friday. And instead of just going home and showering and then going back to the hospital, <laughs> she went home, showered, took some sleep, went to the IGA, bought some fruit, and came to my house to bring fruit to my children and my wife. Like, God's work in her is showing up in the way that she is others-oriented. She's not sitting back, going, oh, woe is me, and you know, I, I need people to serve me and to come around. I need to be a consumer. No, she has that Philippians 2 DNA in her. Consider the interest of others more significant than yourself. She's thinking about me. And that's, that's the love of Christ at work in a sister. Think of many of you who come here week after week after week faithfully gathering together. Gathering together here is encouraging. And we'll get to that in a little bit. I don't get ahead of myself. But, but my, my, my point at this juncture is to say, plan to encourage one another. Identify what people are doing. Identify, you know, you see somebody is really growing in love or, or compassion. Reasonable, tell them. Plan to encourage someone this week. Think of a name right now. Write it down if you need to. Reach out and encourage. Write a note. It is valuable. Paul is encouraging these brothers as he travels. And notice too this long list of names in verse 4 that are hard to pronounce. Um, these, some folks think this is just representative of guys from all the regions that Paul has visited, um, and they are, have brought collection for the collection he's taking to Jerusalem. Um, I, I don't know, it's kind of speculative, but what we, what's certain that I think we see is all these guys are with Paul and they're ministering together with him. Which brings us to an important point. Paul did not evangelize the Mediterranean world alone. Right? No one is omni-gifted. We all need each other. Paul didn't just encourage, he received encouragement. Do you remember that back in Acts, in Acts chapter 18? Right, He needed encouragement from Aquila and Priscilla. The church encouraged him. And then Jesus himself came to Paul and encouraged him. He said, don't quit speaking. Keep speaking. Encourage him. We all need to give and receive encouragement. It is good for the brothers and sisters who hear it, and it's good for us. It leads us to have proper gratitude for God's work, and it leads them to recognize, hey, that feels, that feels pretty good. God really is at work in me. To give encouragement. Paul doesn't stop giving encouragement, though, just on his journey. He continues it here when he arrives in Troas in verse 7. The application there was to encourage one another, encourage the church by sharing many words of encouragement. For, we're going to follow my structure here. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them. And since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until about midnight. The first thing many of you are probably pondering here is Midnight? What? Well, 
they met typically in the evenings. It's not like they met on Sunday mornings as we do. The custom originally was to meet on, on Sunday evening because um, everybody had to work on the day on Sunday. And as times changed and cultures changed, the church began to meet on, on Sunday morning as we do now. But the church has always met on the first day of the week, on what we call the Lord's Day. And it's easy to see why, right? We just read Matthew 28, verses 1 through 6. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. And the angel told the women, Don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Brothers and sisters, the church meets on Sunday, the church meets on the Lord's Day in order to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, to delight in that good news that we don't have to be afraid because Jesus is not in a tomb in the Middle East. No, he's risen and he's seated at the right hand of God right now. That's why we come together. Because he has defeated death. Because he lives. And so we gather together here each Sunday to worship him together. He is our Lord and our God. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, that's why we come together. It's because we believe that Jesus Christ is a historical figure and that in space and time in history, he really did raise from the dead. We believe that's what the historical evidence proves. That he's alive. Pray that you would consider these things. So we meet on the Lord's Day because that is when Jesus rose from the dead. And this has been the pattern from very early on in the church. As you can see here on the first day of the week, we assembled, we gathered not only is it a pattern here, it's a pattern throughout the New Testament, and it's something we are commanded to do. We are commanded to gather together. Hebrews 10, once more, 24 and 25. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. And so let me paraphrase this for you. Keep following Jesus because he's faithful. Keep watching out for one another. Keep provoking one another to love and good works. Keep gathering together on the Lord's day. This is a good Christian habit. It is an opportunity to encourage one another as you wait for Jesus to return. One of the the really neat things that happens when we are reconciled to Christ by faith is that we are also reconciled to one another. That God, when when he brings us into relationship with himself, he, he brings us into relationship with his people. 
It's, it's really an incredible thing. And what, what that means is, is that when we come together here, we, we are not just coming to worship the Lord Jesus. We're coming to do that. We are also coming here for one another, to encourage one another. So when you peel yourself up off the mattress on a Sunday morning and you, you come to this service, you're coming for Jesus. Amen. But you are also coming for the other people in this room. You're coming from, for Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, for Dale and Linda and Lauren, Connie and David and Mike and Janie and Janet and Sarah and Autumn, you're coming to encourage one another. To watch out for one another. And to provoke one another to love and good works. You're coming to say to one another, continue in the faith. Jesus has made a promise and he always keeps his word. He said he would rise from the dead and he's alive. They crucified him, but they couldn't keep him dead. Keep following. I know it's hard right now, brother or sister. Keep following him. I know that life is kind of humdrum and you would like to just sleep in, but don't. Get up. Come. Jesus is still alive. He's still worth it. You have a part to play. You have a role to play in this worship service. Every Lord's Day, you come to encourage and to be encouraged. And when you choose to not be here, it's a dereliction of duty. They're, they're, I'm not saying they're, you, know, you go on vacation and you do other things. Let the listener understand what I'm saying. This should be a priority, responsibility to one another because of your love for Jesus. God has made us His, and in so doing, He has made us all profoundly others-oriented. God's love for Jesus is a fountainhead that overflows to us and from us to others. Gathering together on the Lord's Day is the best investment of your time and energy that you could possibly make. It draws you out of yourself and into the life of Christ and his body. And so, friends, I exhort you to come, not to be entertained, but to encourage. Not to say, what can I consume, but what can I give? Encourage the church by celebrating Jesus through gathering together on the Lord's Day. The second thing I want to bring your attention to here is the stated purpose for their gathering together in verse 7. Do you see that? On the first day of the week, we gathered together, or when we were gathered together, we assembled to break bread. Break bread is a phrase in Luke in an Acts that refers to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was often taken in concert with an ordinary meal, but not always. I don't think it's the case here that it was taken in concert with an ordinary meal because they are meeting late into the night and it would be unusual for them to eat after midnight. But we see 
that the Lord's Supper is so central to the purpose of their gathering together that it's, it's pregnant with all the other elements of their worship service. So that they can say, on the first day of the week, we gather together to break bread. We gather together to participate in the Lord's Supper. And, and clearly from the rest of the text we see, well, they also gathered together to listen to Paul preach. Right? They also gathered together to do those things outlined in Acts 2.42. Right? Be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And so they are gathered together for worship, which is made up of more than the Lord's Supper, but not less. The Lord's Supper here is a synecdoche, one part represents the whole, that is able to convey all the elements of the worship service. So synecdoche, it's kind of a bigger word, it's unusual. It just means one part represents the whole. So if I pull my new Lamborghini up here one day, uh, and you know, and I say to you all, you all are in here, and I come in the back doors, and I say, hey, come check out my wheels. Like, you guys know that I'm not saying, hey, just come check out my tires, right? When I say my wheels, I'm referring to the whole car, right? So likewise, I think the Lord's Supper is used as a synecdoche here. It's the wheels that represent the, the whole structure of the worship gathering. With me? It's very important and significant part of their worshiping the Lord together. It's so central that it's pregnant with the other elements. Now there has been, there's no discussion that the Lord's Supper is a really important part of the Christian experience. There is plenty of disagreement about the frequency with which uh, churches should participate in the Lord's Supper. That's fine. There's no chapter and verse that say, Thou shalt take the Lord's Supper biannually, or weekly, or you know, quarterly. That doesn't exist. And so there's, there's room for freedom here, and disagreement, and different practices. What I do want to do is take an opportunity to give you four reasons why we practice participating in the Lord's Supper weekly. Four reasons for the practice. The first one is the pattern that we see in the New Testament, in verses like this. Right on the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread, to participate in the Lord's Supper. Also, see that when Paul discusses the Lord's Supper, he situates the whole discussion in the context of when you gather together. I think once we become convinced that this is the pattern of the New Testament, this is the practice that we would want to follow. Jim Hamilton writes, Everywhere the apostles went to make disciples, they planted churches. They baptized new disciples into membership in those churches. And those churches met on the first day of the week to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, looking forward for his return by partaking of the Lord's Supper. If we become convinced the earliest church in every place took the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day, we will want to do the same. And so, recognizing that the Lord's Supper was a regular feature in the life of the early church's worship gatherings, we too seek to make the Lord's Supper a regular feature of our gatherings together here. Reason number two. First one was pattern. Second one is passion. The Lord's Supper gives us an opportunity to feed upon the body and blood of Christ. Now the elements are, of course, symbolic. They're not literally body and blood of Jesus. 
but they do represent a taking of Christ into ourselves. They do remind us that it is Jesus who is the bread from heaven, who sustains us and gives life and fills us up. So it inflames our passions and our love for Christ. Third reason, unity. Unity. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we have been made one in Christ and one with Christ. I read this to you every week when we take the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since we all share the one bread. The Lord's Supper acts. It binds the many into the one. It is a reminder of our union with Jesus and with one another, and it's an opportunity to enter into communion with Jesus and with one another. A true experience of sharing a meal with Jesus and his people. I do love, uh, back in the early church, they actually used to literally spread out tablecloths on top of the pews when they would take the Lord's Supper. To say, this, this is a meal that is presented to us by God. It promotes unity. Lastly, fourth reason, proclamation. Proclamation. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I had a professor in seminary who probably still says this, but he, he said, sermons preach to the ear and the Lord's supper preaches to the eye. You understand what he means? That when we explain the meaning behind the bread and the cup, the gospel becomes soberingly animated to us. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. We are taking Christ into ourselves because he is the one who gives us life and sustenance. It ensures that if the rest of our service is jacked up, if I fail to preach the gospel, that the gospel is proclaimed here. We want to be devoted to making the gospel clear that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life, was crucified for sins, dead, buried, and rose from the dead. That he is reigning right now in heaven and that he is returning to judge sin, to end evil, and to make all things new. And so all men and women everywhere ought to repent of their sins, their rebellion against God, and put their faith in him. And the supper helps us to make this proclamation clear we come to the table together. This is probably also an instance of visiting communion, uh, but I am not going to go down the rabbit trail of open and closed communion right now. Instead, uh, we will press on to our third point, which is following Jesus. And the point before that was to encourage one another by celebrating Jesus through gathering together on the Lord's Day, celebrate Jesus by participating in the Lord's Supper, and then celebrate Jesus by 
listening to God's word. So I do need to back up. Verse 8. This is where the exciting part of our passage comes. If you read ahead, you were like, why hasn't he got there yet? This is the best. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the, upper, in the room upstairs where they were assembled. And a young man named Eutychus, his name means lucky or fortunate one, a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a windowsill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. When he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. If we wanted to be really funny here, I could say the application is don't fall asleep when I'm preaching. Or I could say, hey, I I can drone on and on and on. It's biblical. Or you might say, don't preach so long or people will die. But this really is interesting here. that This young man is he's trying to stay awake. The, Luke's emphasis is on how long Paul is speaking. If you just read through it, he mentions that Paul is speaking and he keeps on speaking and it's almost midnight and there are lamps in the room. It's kind of warm. It's been a long day and he's, he's just, the spirit is willing but the body is weak and and they pick him up dead. And, and what I love about what Paul does here is he doesn't get, like, if it were me, I'd probably be like, serves him right. Got what was coming to him. Fell out of the third store window and you're dead. Shouldn't have fell asleep while I was preaching. Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say, serves him right. He, he doesn't just drop a, a sweat rag out of the window, like down onto him to heal him. You know, boop, I'm, I'm resurrected. Paul loves Eutychus. He loves him. And so he goes to him. Look in verse... Verse 10. (laughs) But Paul went down, bent over him, embraced him and said, don't be alarmed because he's alive. After going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn. And then he left. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted, encouraged. Well, Paul just, he, he cares for this boy. And he comes and he performs a miracle, resurrects him, and once more showing that he is in that same, of that same apostolic pedigree as Peter, who rose people from the dead. And as Elijah and Elisha who performed resurrections. That indeed he represents Jesus, the resurrected one. I think a story just appeals to me in so many ways. I think we've, we've all had a Eutychus experience as Christians. Right? If you're a Christian, you have been dead in your sins without hope. And someone came to you with the word of God. And Jesus said, or, and Jesus was, we, you heard that Jesus had been crucified to forgive us of our sins. And then he'd been raised from the dead to free us from death. And you believed and you came to life. That's good news. 
the Eutychus experience is one that we can all look back on fondly and remember. Where we heard the words of God condemn us in our sin and then give us life as they turned our eyes away from ourselves to the Savior. Paul encourages them with his words. They they listen to his preaching all night long. So too, we can encourage the church by devoting ourselves to the teaching of God's word. And so lastly, now, I had gotten way ahead of myself. We can encourage the church by following Jesus. And look with me in verse 13. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Asos, where we were going to take Paul on board, because these were his instructions, since he himself was going by land. When he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. Sailing from there, the next day we arrived at Chios, and the following day we crossed over to Samos, and the day after we came to Miletus. I did not say that right. Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. He realized if he stopped in Ephesus, people are, that's going to be like a two, three-week deal. Like everybody's going to want to see Paul. Paul, come stay. Come have lunch with us. And he's like, I need to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. And so he avoids Ephesus because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. What I want to bring your attention to is that as we pointed out last week, the storyline of Acts is unfolding here. The rest of the book is that Paul's going to go to Jerusalem and then he hopes to go to Rome. We saw it in 1921 and we see it here. There is a shift taking place. Paul is no longer kind of hoping to avoid suffering. He's turned his face to Jerusalem where his enemies are waiting for him. He knows that he is walking head first into persecution. And we we are to see a reenactment of Jesus' own life. Just as Jesus avoided the plots of the Jews, participated in the Lord's Supper, and then went to suffer in Jerusalem, so too Paul has avoided the plots of the Jews celebrated the Lord's Supper, taught well through the night, and now is setting his face to Jerusalem where he expects to suffer. He's told he's going to suffer by Agabus the prophet in chapter 21, verses 11 through 14. Agabus came to us, took Paul's belt and tied it around his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul replied, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. Just as Jesus set his face as flint and went into Jerusalem, into suffering, so too does Paul. He's following in the footsteps of Christ. Unlike Jesus, though, Paul will not be 
crucified. He will not be killed, but he will be bound and eventually taken to Rome. Your faithfulness in following Jesus encourages other Christians. Your faithfulness in following Jesus encourages other Christians. I mean, when you read Acts and you read about how Paul and and Peter and these early Christians endured suffering, endured persecutions, endured trials, all for the sake of the name of Christ, I don't know how you don't walk away a little fired up, encouraged. Over and over, you know, Stephen dies as a martyr in a pool of his own blood, and we read, but the word of God went on. It spread. It flourished. The servant is buried, but the word is growing up. That's encouraging. It encourages other believers to stay the course of faithfulness. So we want to encourage one another by faithfully following after Jesus. Just as Paul did. That's why he's able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11. Enters into Christ's sufferings so that others might know Jesus. Let the same be said of us. That we are ready to follow Jesus to the death. And that we will finish our course. Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful opportunity we have to encourage one another. To encourage this church by sharing words of encouragement and celebrating Jesus through our gathering together here, our participation in the Lord's Supper, our devotion to God's Word. An opportunity we have to encourage one another by faithfully following Jesus together. We have an opportunity to encourage one another this morning as we come to the table and proclaim the death and resurrection to Jesus of Jesus to one another. By saying to one another, Christ was mocked and beaten, torn apart for your sins. That his blood that spilled from his head and his side and his hands and his feet cleanses you from all unrighteousness. To to, to say to one another, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Let's, Let's encourage one another by coming to the table and proclaiming not only our Lord's death, but also his resurrection and his victory over sin, his victory over death, his promise to return. Let's be marked and characterized by encouragement. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for reconciling us to yourself and to one another. Pray that you would mark us not by grumbling or dissatisfaction or selfishness, but by Christ-like love and selflessness, that we would be a people who encourage one another, that this church would be a place of life 
that when people walk through our doors, when we walk through our doors, there would be an uplifting of our hearts. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.